This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is uncertainty and ambiguity. In the first half, we'll hear Erin Holmes from her 2017 BYU devotional address, Waiting Upon the Lord, the Antidote to Uncertainty. Then in the second half, Eric Gillette talks about testimony and other wicked problems. Here is Erin Holmes, professor in the BYU School of Family Life. I'm very grateful for the opportunity I have to speak with you today. In fact, I'm grateful I have a voice at all because I've had laryngitis, and I really appreciate all of my colleagues, friends, and family who have been praying for me. Um, As you can see, I do have a little bit of a voice. I'd like to begin with a scripture in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. I have pondered this scripture each time I have a conversation with someone who didn't get into the graduate program they applied to, didn't know what job to take, came home from their mission early, or had other unexpected experiences. As I listen to their stories, my mind returns to that scripture and the reality that time and chance happeneth to us all. Today, I would like to explore this scripture with you, but I suggest that another way of talking about time and chance is to use the word uncertainty. Though the sources of your uncertainty will likely differ from mine, I believe this scripture in Ecclesiastes speaks the truth. No one will be immune from uncertainty or the struggle, questioning, heartache, and pain that may accompany it. Uncertainty has many faces. It includes questions, doubts, ambiguity, and the discovery that persons or things are not quite what we expected. In essence, uncertainty is a reflection of the gap between our desire for the ideal and our experience of the real. The ideal represents how we think things ought to be or should be. The real is how things actually are. Though we live our lives in the real world, our dreams and goals are often reflected in ideals. When we experience a gap between the ideal and the real, we experience uncertainty. In some of my research, I've studied this gap for women transitioning to parenthood. My colleagues and I focused our attention on what new mothers thought their ideal work situations would be versus what their real work situations were. We defined work situations broadly, including opportunities to stay home, to combine work and family, to combine school and family, etc. The majority of the mothers in our sample, more than 70%, experienced a gap between what they believed to be ideal and what their actual work and family situation was. I tell you this to exemplify the claim in Ecclesiastes that chance happeneth to them all. My colleagues and I also discovered that the greater the gap, the higher the likelihood that a mother would experience depression. I think this finding reflects something else about uncertainty. Gaps between our ideals and our real circumstances challenge us. When reality hits or when things don't go as planned, we may struggle. About two and a half years ago, after many years of hoping another child would come to our family, my husband and I discovered we were pregnant. 
Even our children had been hoping we would have another baby. They had been praying in family prayer for a new brother or sister. And my son told me he had dreamt of a new baby coming to our family. Because of their prayers, we told our children about the pregnancy right away, thinking it would reaffirm their faith and shore up their testimonies. Unexpectedly, about 10 weeks into the pregnancy, we lost that baby. The pregnancy had felt like such a miraculous gift after so many years of waiting. Losing that baby felt like God was taking the gift away. The loss left me with many unanswered questions and much uncertainty. Loss was not a new experience for me, but somehow this loss shook me to my core. Frankly, I didn't know if I could hope for another child. I didn't know if I could trust God the way I had before this loss. I felt like somehow I had failed God, or maybe He had failed me. This was a time of uncertainty. This reflected a gap in my own life between the ideal, a fertile body, a healthy pregnancy, and a healthy baby, and the real infertility and a miscarriage. Uncertainty can be painful. So, if uncertainty is inevitable, and if it can be so challenging, what do we do about it? Elder Robert D. Hales taught this. As we ask these questions, we realize that the purpose of our life on earth is to grow, develop, and be strengthened through our own experiences. He continued, How do we do this? The scriptures give us an answer in one simple phrase. We wait upon the Lord. I would like to spend the remainder of this address talking with you about how we can put Elder Hale's insight to use in our own lives by waiting upon the Lord during times of uncertainty. One of the most beautiful scriptures on waiting upon the Lord is found in Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to these promises. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because the Lord fainteth not, neither is weary. He will be the source of our strength. Notice that Isaiah does not say you will find the Lord right away or that He will answer all of your questions right now. He does promise, however, that as you wait upon the Lord, you will have the capacity to endure life's uncertainties. As I have turned to scriptures like this for answers and reflected on my own experiences with uncertainty, I have discovered four basic principles that help us wait upon the Lord. I believe this waiting is the antidote for uncertainty. First, waiting includes actively seeking God. As we seek, we must trust that we will find Him. Second, waiting includes understanding God's plan for us. Third, while waiting, we can choose faith and hope. Fourth, as we struggle in the waiting, we can find reassurance in God's love for us. First, we must actively seek God. 
As we seek God, we must trust that we will find Him. Here are two scriptures that form the foundation of this principle. The first is found in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. Quote, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. End quote. The second is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. End quote. If we could have a conversation with each other right now, I would want to hear your stories about times when you felt the Lord was hiding and you had to look for Him, or times when you felt you searched for Him with all your heart. Usually we talk about searching with our eyes, so I'm intrigued by the concept of searching with one's heart. Since we can't have that conversation in this setting, I will share one of my stories with you. My miscarriage was not my first experience with uncertainty. One of my first major bouts with uncertainty began when I was in my early 20s. My husband Chris and I were recently married and were hoping to have children. As months passed and then years passed, we discovered it would not be easy for us to get pregnant. So we waited. In the waiting, we filled our lives with graduate studies, church service, and friendships. We had a good life. But our struggle with infertility was deeply painful to me. There was so much uncertainty in that waiting. Would we ever discover why we were unable to have children? Would we finally be able to welcome a child to our family? What should I do with myself while I waited? Work? Get a PhD? This uncertainty and waiting invited me to regularly turn to God for answers. I was discovering the first principle of waiting upon the Lord. I had to actively seek God in order to find Him. To seek, I studied my scriptures. I studied teachings of prophets. I attended ward meetings. I went to the temple. I magnified my calling. I prayed fervently. Despite my seeking, the answers did not come swiftly. I remember sitting in my ward in Newark, Delaware, on a day when I felt like the heavens were particularly silent. Remember that scripture I told you? where Isaiah referred to the Lord hiding His face. One of our congregational hymns that Sunday was, I'll go where you want me to go. We sang the words, But if by a still small voice He calls to paths that I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in Thine. I'll go where you want me to go. That lyric represented my uncertainty, those paths that I do not know. And through the other lyrics of that hymn, I began to receive an answer to my prayers. In the midst of my uncertainty and longing to know, I had to put my hand in the Lord's hand. I had to let Him lead me. As we continued singing the hymn, I received a distinct impression that the Lord wanted me to go deeper into darkness and uncertainty on an unknown journey. I felt impressed that the journey would include further graduate studies. But I also felt that I would not immediately receive the answers I sought about having children. Instead, I had to keep moving forward. I had to keep waiting and seeking. In such darkness, I couldn't seek the Lord with my eyes alone. I had to seek Him with my heart. What a deeply humbling thing it is to wait upon the Lord. Though I did not receive all of the answers I sought, I was finding the Lord 
and he was helping me feel his presence in my life. So I kept moving forward. Later in that same school year, I attended the General Young Women's Session. Many of the talks that evening focused on personal revelation. The closing address was given by President Gordon B. Hinckley. This was a significant talk for me. President Hinckley taught, Find purpose in your life. Choose the things you would like to do and educate yourselves to be effective in their pursuit. In this day and time, a girl needs an education. She needs the means and skills by which to earn a living. Study your options. Pray to the Lord earnestly for direction. Then pursue your course with resolution. The whole gamut of human endeavor is now open to women. There is not anything that you cannot do if you will set your mind to it. You can include in the dream of the woman you would like to be a picture of one qualified to serve society and make a significant contribution to the world of which she will be a part. In this message, the Lord offered me a vision through His prophet of the kind of future that could be mine. Again, I received no particular answer to my lingering question about when or whether I would have children. My uncertainty was not resolved, nor was my waiting over. Yet, I was reminded that the whole gamut of human endeavor was open to me. Regardless of whether I became a mother, there could be a work for me to do. I felt a confirmation that continuing my education could help me become one qualified to serve society and make a significant contribution to the world around me. President Hinckley was reinforcing the message I had received a few months before while I sang the hymn with my ward members. In faith, seek the Lord. Put your hand in His and take this unknown journey together. President Uchtdorf said it beautifully. Quote, the Savior is not far from every one of us. We have His promise that if we seek Him diligently, we will find Him. End quote. The second principle I have discovered is that waiting upon the Lord includes trying to understand God's plan for you. I felt as I listened to that hymn and as I listened to President Hinckley that God had a plan for me. If I continued to faithfully seek, things that needed to be revealed to me would be revealed. Today, I want to share that same faith with those of you struggling through uncertain times. God has a plan for you. As you seek Him, He will help you come to know what that plan includes. But as I share my faith with you, I also want to share a few other things about that phrase, God has a plan for you. First, the plan God has for you may not match the ideal you envisioned. In fact, if we take that scripture in Ecclesiastes seriously, it probably won't match the ideal you envisioned. But you can have faith that together you and the Lord can create something truly remarkable. Some of my students this semester shared a blog post with me entitled, You're Not Messing Up God's Plan for You. The author teaches, quote, It's tempting to think that God has some master plan that He's measuring me against, and if I take one misstep, I've missed my chance for happiness forever. End quote. I can relate to that fear. When our life doesn't seem to match the ideals we envisioned, we may struggle, just as this author did worrying that we don't measure up, or fearing that we're disappointing God. She continued, quote, But you know what? 
As I've examined that mindset, I've learned that I need a better understanding of God and what the term His plan for me means. She continued, I'm learning that a God is much less a divine dictator who demands perfect compliance to a predetermined plan for our individual lives and much more a co-creator with us of the kind of lives we want to live." End quote. What a fantastic distinction. God is not a dictator. Instead, He is a co-creator. His plan includes creating a remarkable life with us. Part of understanding God's plan for each of us is having the faith to enter into a partnership with Him. We do this by making and keeping covenants. When my eldest daughter, Elena, was baptized, I tried to teach her about how our covenants connect us with Christ by sharing this quote by Elder William R. Bradford. Quote, be a companion with Christ, and He will draw near unto you and be your best friend. There is no better friend than Christ. End quote. Through our covenants, we are bound to Him, and He is bound to us. What better friend could you have than Christ? Together, you and He can create a remarkable life. Second, God's plan for you will not match the plans God has for others. You must come to know what the Lord wants for you personally. President Uchtdorf taught, We may share the same gene pool, but we are not the same. We have unique spirits. We are influenced in different ways by our experiences, and each of us ends up different as a result. Rather than attempting to force everyone into a mold of our own making, we can choose to celebrate these differences and appreciate them for adding richness and constant surprises to our lives. It takes courage and faith to celebrate and appreciate the beauty of our differences, to give others space to discover their own path, and to trust that God will help us just like we see Him helping those around us. This may include celebrating the wedding of a friend when you have no marriage prospects on the horizon. It may include excitement for someone who just got into the graduate school of their dreams, even though you didn't. I know what it's like to feel forgotten or insecure when others get the things you hoped for. But if you can learn to celebrate and appreciate differences, I believe your heart will be more open to what God has in store for you. At BYU Women's Conference in 2015, Elder M. Russell Ballard pled, Each of you must come to know what the Lord wants for you individually, given the choices before you. He continued, Once you know the Lord's will, you can then move forward in faith to fulfill your individual purpose. One sister may be inspired to continue her education and attend medical school, allowing her to have significant impact on her patients and to advance medical research. For another sister, inspiration may lead her to forego a scholarship to a prestigious institution and instead begin a family much earlier than has become common in this generation, allowing her to make a significant and eternal impact on her children now. Then he posed this question, Is it possible for two similarly faithful women to receive such different responses to the same basic questions? He emphatically responded, Absolutely! What's right for one woman may not be right for another. That's why it is so important that we should not question each other's choices or the inspiration behind them. What is right for one of you 
may not be right for another. With this understanding, we can encourage each other, celebrate and appreciate our differences, and move forward in a partnership with the Lord. We need not judge or criticize. Our encouragement and love amidst our differences will enhance our capacity to celebrate together. It will also enhance our individual capacity to understand God's plan for us as we create that plan with Him. Waiting, seeking, and understanding God's plan for us all require a tremendous amount of faith and hope. But how do we maintain faith and hope when uncertainty has such a strong capacity to make us doubt and fear? That question leads to my third principle. As we wait upon the Lord, we can choose faith and hope. To me, the opposite and faith of faith and hope are fear. So when I say that we can choose faith and hope, I am also implying that we can choose faith and hope over fear. Some of you may be like me, a little anxious and a little afraid to try new things. When you experience anxiety or fear, they seem innate, not like a choice. In a 2008 devotional, Professor Gregory Clark grappled with this tension between faith and fear. He argued that when we wake up every day, we choose to be either faithful or fearful. When we choose faith, we minimize fear. When we choose fear, hope and faith are virtually impossible. Professor Clark explained, quote, When I am living in fear, I find change and changing for the better, at least, almost impossible. It is important to learn how to live in faith rather than in fear, because the process of changing for the better is at the very foundation of the Father's plan for us. End quote. He then asked, What is the source of fear? I like his answer. Quote, I think it is rooted in the assumption that I must solve all my problems and face all my challenges alone, using my own resources. That is frightening, because deep in my heart, I know how limited those resources are. Knowing that I am not capable of changing myself or my circumstances for the better, I stand frozen in fear." End quote. So fear comes from the false belief that we are all alone. What is the source of faith and hope? Professor Clark teaches, quote, Faith is founded upon our memory of divine witnesses and blessings received in the past and upon our hope in divine promises for the future. End quote. When we remember spiritual experiences or blessings the Lord has given us, it is easier to hope for those same things in the future. They remind us that we are not alone. This optimism in Christ's divinity and this belief that we will continue to be blessed are the very essence of hope and faith. One thing that helps me remember is keeping a record of the spiritual experiences and blessings I have received in my life. On my hardest days, I like to pull out that journal and realize just how much the Lord loves me and watches over me. When I begin to feel afraid, rereading my journal reminds me that it would not have been better to lose hope, to stop trying to have children, to stop working toward my PhD, to stop seeking God despite the heartache and challenges that have been part of my journey. 
Choosing faith and practicing hope have empowered me to act on God's will, which include embracing uncertainty and enduring beyond what I thought I could endure. After my miscarriage, I discovered this painting by Brian Krzyznik. It is entitled, She Will Find What Is Lost. This painting has come to represent my fourth principle. If you feel lost as you wait, you can find reassurance in God's love for you. Sometimes, amid the waiting and despite our best efforts, we may find ourselves feeling lost. I told you about my experiences with infertility, my resulting questions about my purpose in life, and my struggle following one of my miscarriages. What I didn't tell you is that after that miscarriage, aside from the loss of a child I had longed for, I began to lose myself. I felt distant from God. I sought Him but felt I couldn't find Him. I struggled to find a sense of meaning or a sense of direction in my life. It took a considerable amount of waiting and struggling to choose hope, but I worked at it. About a year and a half after that miscarriage, I discovered I was pregnant again. My anxiety about losing this baby was high. Despite my excitement about a new pregnancy, I began again to feel lost. One day while at work, that lost feeling was intense. I knelt down in my office in the JFSB, and I prayed fervently that God would be with me. It was a prayer full of faith and longing. In faith, I asked God to be with me in my waiting. I really longed for Him to confirm to me that my baby would be healthy. But while praying, I knew that I had to pray for something else. I had to pray that whatever happened to this baby in this pregnancy, God would be with me. He would help me manage whatever pain, sorrow, or loss could happen. I had to pray this because though losing a baby is not ideal, the possibility was real. That was a humbling experience. After that fervent prayer, I stood up and tried to return to my regular routine. Part of my routine that day included walking down to the Richards Building to meet my daughter after her ballroom dance practice. As I walked down the steps and into the building, the most remarkable thing happened. It stopped me in my tracks. I felt a tingling from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. It was truly electric. In my mind and in my heart, I knew God was fully aware of me. He understood how lost and afraid I felt. He was with me then and would continue to be with me however long I needed Him. That was a rare but needed gift for me in that moment. The title of this painting returned to my mind again. She will find what is lost. God was helping me find what was lost. I was not alone. Sadly, I did have another miscarriage. But this time, I did not lose that powerful, sustaining witness of God's love for me. When we feel lost, we can find reassurance in God's love for us. Previously, I suggested that a core principle of waiting is that we have to seek the Lord in order to find Him. My experience taught me that there is an interesting paradox amidst that truth. Sometimes, 
When we are lost, He will also find us. This paradox may be best reflected in the parable of the lost sheep. President Uchtdorf taught about this parable. Quote, is it possible that the Savior's message was that the God is fully aware of those who are lost and that He will find them, that He will reach out to them, and that He will rescue them? Our Savior, the Good Shepherd, knows when you are lost, and He knows where you are. He knows your grief, your silent pleadings, your fears, your tears. You are His child and he loves his children." End quote. In closing, I would like to share one more message regarding uncertainty. Sister Neil F. Marriott taught, Scripture says, Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. This doesn't mean all things are good, but for the meek and faithful, things, both positive and negative, work together for good. And the timing is the Lord's. We wait on Him, sometimes like Job in his suffering, knowing that God maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth, and His hands make whole. A meek heart accepts the trial and the waiting for that time of healing and wholeness to come. I am still waiting. In my waiting, I have sought God and found Him. His plan for me is unfolding as I take His hand and accept the invitation to become a co-creator with Him. I am trying to choose hope and faith. Sometimes, when I am lost, He finds me. Despite life's uncertainties, I pray that you will also seek Him, that you will strive to understand His plan for you, and that you will choose faith and hope. As you do these things, I hope that you will receive heavenly reassurance. He knows you. He loves you. I testify that following these principles has helped me face uncertainty. I believe these principles can help you, too. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. Our theme today, uncertainty and ambiguity. We've just heard from Dr. Aaron Holmes. After the break, we'll return for Dr. Eric Gillette with testimony and other wicked problems. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is uncertainty and ambiguity. Next is Dr. Eric Gillette, a professor of graphic design with his 2017 BYU devotional, Testimony and Other Wicked Problems. In recent years, there have been glowing, breathless reports appearing in the media that speak of a new approach to problem solving. And this method promises a competitive edge for businesses, organizations, and governments alike. Innovation consultants use the approach to tease out new ideas and collecting hefty fees in the process. Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and a new binge-worthy Netflix series all extol its virtues. 
In the corporate boardroom, the CDO, or the Chief Design Officer, has joined the ranks of the CEO and the CFO. Design-driven companies like Apple, Nike, and Target consistently outperform their competitors. It seems that design thinking, as it's known, is all the rage. Corporate profits alone, however, can't explain all the new interest in design thinking. In 1973, a German design theorist introduced the concept of a wicked problem. Contrary to what you might expect by the name, a wicked problem does not refer to something evil or sinister, but instead describes something so tricky and complicated that it seems to defy solution. With wicked problems, the situation is dynamic and uh, often involves multiple variables. Both the exact nature of the problem and the solutions remain unknown when the project begins. Examples of wicked problems might include climate change, poverty, the Syrian civil war, or American healthcare, to name a few. For these problems, there are no easy answers, no silver bullets. When other approaches fail, design thinking offers a fairly reliable process for solving wicked problems. It values empathy, understanding, and usability, all part of the human experience. Instead of counting widgets or poring uh, over sales charts, design thinking takes a more anthropological approach, uncovering the human motivations behind complex problems. As I thought about the message I could share with you today, I was reminded that many design principles offer insight into solving some of life's great challenges. I believe that by applying these principles to your own wicked problems, your chance of solving them may improve. While this morning I've chosen to apply these principles to building a testimony, the methods are transferable to any problem you face in your life that you deem wicked. So before we review these principles, take a moment to think, what is your wicked problem? Maybe it's making your next tuition payment or choosing a new roommate, finding a summer internship, or even a date for Saturday night. Perhaps, though, your wicked problem is more complex, a bit more tricky. You struggle with certain church doctrines, you doubt your testimony, or wonder whether you'll stay active in the church after you graduate. This is a picture of my maternal grandparents, Bill and Alita Schulberg, shown during their courtship around 1928. They were about the same age as many of you. Although they didn't have the luxury of attending college or know the stress of choosing a major, they both struggled with feelings of resentment towards the church and their very active, devout parents. As a boy, my grandfather posed with his mother and siblings for a family photo to be sent to his father, who was serving a mission in Sweden, his native country. What you don't see in the photo is the harsh poverty they endured while their father was away. My 14-year-old grandfather, who's on the top left, and his 16-year-old brother on the top right were tasked with running a very large dry farm all on their own. With no time left for schooling, my grandfather dropped out to carry the heavy burden of supporting the family on his young shoulders. He was particularly incensed at his father and church leaders for the extra physical burden this placed on his mother, who at one point had to haul water uh, for drinking, washing, and cooking from a well that was six miles from their home. My grandmother, Alita, also experienced hardship growing up, and she frequently recalled being left hungry and alone, while her mother, the Ward Relief Society president, traveled to help neighbors and friends during childbirth distress or illness. She often stayed away for nights on end, and it's little wonder that Bill and Alita both felt forgotten, marginalized, and bitter. They longed for escape and found comfort in their common circumstances. So against the advice of their parents and the bishop, and expecting their first child, they struck off on their own for a place called Mud Lake, Idaho. 
Their timing could not have been worse. Because just a few months later, the stock market crash of 1929 ushered in the Great Depression. On arriving in Mud Lake, my grandparents found much of the land abandoned. It was devastated by drought, harsh weather, and crop-eating jackrabbits. So earlier homesteaders had picked up and moved away. Bill and Alita had no money, no work, and very little education. So testimony at that point in their lives was not a priority. My grandparents had a wicked problem. The allegory of testimony found in Alma 32 perfectly describes their circumstances. If ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away. And ye pluck it out and cast it out. It is because your ground is barren, and ye will not nourish the tree. Therefore ye cannot have the fruit thereof. Design thinking principles are not the exclusive domain of designers. As my grandparents' story will show, they apply to everyone. Although they most likely would dismiss these ideas as hoity-toity nonsense, my grandparents actively employed them to great success in their lives. You will recognize many of these principles as natural, even obvious parts of your own problem-solving routine because to a large extent, design thinking is simply gospel thinking. As we begin the process, we must agree to a few conditions. First, since solutions to wicked problems cannot be reduced to a series of linear steps, the uncertainty found in the beginning is to be expected. I have heard this phase referred to as the fuzzy front end. Another designer visualized the design process as the design squiggle. The squiggle accurately depicts every design problem I have faced, most discussions at our family dinner table, and most importantly, my own search for testimony. Although the design process begins with uncertainty, a designer recognizes ambiguity as an opportunity to innovate, disrupt the status quo, or reframe a problem. They believe a solution to their problem will eventually appear. While the secular world would be loath to label this concept faith, the parallels are unmistakable. When my grandparents began their fuzzy, complicated journey, they had few other options. Perhaps naively, they maintained enough faith to believe in a positive outcome, no matter how precarious their risk. I feel certain that Joseph Smith would find the, the squiggle similar to his own experience as a young man searching for a problem, to his, uh, searching for a solution to his wicked problem. Like some of us, he was confused by contradictory information, he struggled with church doctrine, doubted his testimony, and was not sure if he would remain an active churchgoer. As you consider the condition of your own testimony, do not overlook the importance of doubt. Doubt causes you to question, it causes you to study, it causes you to seek reassurance from loved ones and your leaders. Most importantly, it causes you to approach the Lord for guidance. Rather than a sign of rebellion, I believe it to be an essential part of the testimony-building process. As we read in James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Upbraideth not means the Lord will not find offense in your questions. Rather, He wants to guide us toward the answers. Doctrine and Covenants section 9 verse 8 suggests you must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right, and it, if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you, therefore you shall feel that it is right. While many of his initial questions were answered by the events um, of the first vision, the uncertainty that Joseph Smith faced would remain with him for years. Like an effective design thinker, he had to stay curious and open while undertaking a new experiment. He had to embrace uncertainty. 
as both an opportunity and a motivating force, and maintain sufficient faith to proceed. The chemist Louis Pasteur identified our second condition when he said, in the field of observation, chance favors the prepared mind. Working to solve a particularly difficult problem, he said, I am on the verge of mysteries and the veil is getting thinner and thinner. Pasteur was referring to the intense preparation that precedes a significant breakthrough, the aha moment. Those moments typically come after a domain has been mastered, not before. In other words, Louis Pasteur didn't just dabble in chemistry, he made it his life's work. Before we can recognize an important insight into our own wicked problem, we have to first put in the effort required to study it out in our minds. Bill and Alita couldn't dabble in farm work either. They had to show up for work seven days a week, no excuses. Dependent on favorable weather and a small herd of farm animals, they had to be all in. With a slight change, could we not adapt the process, the concept of a prepared mind to testimony in the spiritual realm? The work of building testimony comes through the everyday activities of church membership, home teaching, serving as the ward nursery leader, personal prayer and study. Chance dictates that if we choose to engage in the work of the church rather than dabble in it, our minds will be prepared to recognize the Spirit's confirmation. For my grandparents, their first steps together were tentative. After living and working in Mud Lake with extended family during their first year of marriage, Bill and Alita decided to stay. One day, 20 miles out on the desert, my grandfather found a fixer-upper, an old two-room house on an abandoned homestead. With eight borrowed horses, he and a friend hoisted the house up and put it on two sleds and dragged it back 20 miles across the frozen desert. Later, when the family outgrew that house, construction began on a new one. Before the house was finished, however, World War II broke out and building materials were rationed. The family moved into the basement where they lived for 10 years until the house could be finished. Whether they knew it or not, my grandparents were demonstrating another design principle. The term heuristic roughly translates to find or discover. It implies problem solving by active experimentation through a pattern of trial and error. In other words, fake it until you make it. Bill and Alita built their house line upon line as resources became available. And faced with a similar problem for us, it doesn't really matter what your first step is sometimes. The important thing is that you've taken one. When things don't go as planned, taking a single step can cause self-doubt, fear, and paralysis to fade. Your confidence will increase and another step will then seem possible. This process is described in 2 Nephi 28 verse 30 when the Lord said, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom, for unto him that receiveth I will give more. A cognitive scientist referred to this process as incremental development. We make our best guess based on the knowledge we have at the time and then move forward. For a designer, the process looks something like this. We have an idea and start with a thumbnail sketch. Most of the time we fail. A wise designer once said, fail early to succeed sooner. After a slight adjustment based on our first experience, we try again. This time we call it a rough comp. Again, the process continues line upon line, sketch after sketch, as we make gradual adjustments. At some point, one of our ideas bears fruit and something interesting starts to happen. The, an idea takes shape and begins to appear. We call it a tight comp. 
Although not perfect, our idea improves as we continue to refine until suddenly we are getting somewhere and have a final comp. With no stable income, Bill and Alita traded their extra eggs and butter to a local farmer for what they called bum lambs. Since the lambs' mothers had died during birth and other ewes would not accept them, bum lambs were sometimes left to starve because they required constant attention. As demonstrated by a cousin in this picture, Bill and Alita woke every two hours to hand feed the lambs from a, milk, uh, a pop bottle filled with cow's milk. In the midst of these struggles, they found refuge in the friendship of other church members facing similar challenges. As more children came and hearts began to soften, they began to participate in activities with local branch members. Line upon line, precept on precept, their fragile testimonies grew as they planted small seeds in their hearts. If ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. As a 14-year-old boy, Joseph Smith had no idea what he was getting himself into when he asked this simple question, which of all the sects was right, so that I might know which to join. He said, it was the first time in my life that I made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties, I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. In his anxiety, Joseph had taken his first shaky step without knowing where it would lead. Then he waited for further direction. He was proceeding heuristically. He began with a thumbnail sketch. After years of building line upon line, he eventually restored the keys and the authority and the organization that brings us here today. Now, if you're like me, comparing my own experience and spiritual maturity at age 14 to Joseph Smith's is, well, a little awkward. I don't see much correlation. But I do take great comfort in section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which explains that gifts of the Spirit are given to each of us in different ways. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. This scripture offers reassurance that I don't have to measure up to a prophet. My spiritual gifts and small steps towards building a testimony will be different than his and different than yours. We all start in different places, and the Lord will meet us wherever we are. Verse 27 of Alma 32 invites us to begin and experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith. Even if you can do can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my words. My favorite part of the design process is the what if or the ideation phase of design thinking. Curiosity and an ability to generate many ideas is a key characteristic of a design thinker. In the words of the chemist and author Linus Pauling, if you want to have good ideas, you must have many ideas. Divergent thinking means thinking inside, outside, and under the box. Designers may change their perspective, reframe the problem, or challenge a widely held assumption. Using active methods that flip, invert, or reverse, they work to disrupt conventional ways of thinking. One of my favorite divergent thinking methods is called bisociation. More com commonly known as a mashup, it forces together two unrelated domains in an effort to find an unexpected combination. Your experience at BYU is an example of a mashup. You could all receive an excellent education at another university, but instead, you are combining a rigorous study of your major, one domain, 
with matters of faith another domain, and the hope is that something innovative will result from this unique combination. The smartphone in your hand is also an example of bisociative thinking. It's a big, beautiful, addictive mashup of many technologies. Bill and Alita perfected the mashup by thinking divergently with humor and grace. When a family member needed a new dress, they went to the mill with Alita to choose a flower sack. When the sack was empty, it was dismantled and sewn into their new dress. Alita saved every scrap of fabric, no matter how worn. She remade tattered coats to fit smaller family members and turned grandpa's old ties into what's called a crazy quilt and braided the leftover scraps into rugs. When grandma got her hands on a surplus parachute after the war, she was giddy about the repurposing the fancy new fabric called nylon. Spreading out the parachute on the living room floor, she began to cut out patterns for all her children, then all of her nieces, and finally all of the neighbors. Never mind that the nylon was hot and itchy, everyone was gonna have a new blouse. Not to be outdone, grandpa's uh, bum lambs grew into a mighty flock. During the harvest, lambing, and grazing seasons, he often hired extra farmhands and knew exactly where to find them. As a very tall deputy sheriff, he was in charge of crowd control at the local dance hall on Saturday night. His billy club knew exactly where to land when the drunken sheep herders got out of hand. Then on the next day, the Sabbath, he was the local bishop. So in a beautiful mashup of gospel teaching, farm work, and law enforcement, he took the human bum lambs into his home, his fields, and his ward. Many received their first introduction to the gospel through Brother Bill. My grandparents also frequently play, prayed over their flocks and fields. For them, mashing together work and worship came naturally. While most of us no longer work in the fields or in the flock with the flocks, the principle is still valid. We can ask for divine guidance in any aspect of our lives, home, school, or family life. The Prophet Joseph was an excellent example of a divergent thinker. The founding story of the church reveals him to be a radical thinker who challenged long-held assumptions, questioned authority, and gave voice to highly divergent ideas. So I find it slightly ironic that divergent thinking, questioning, or rethinking the status quo may appear to some as antithetical to church culture. It is true that as small children we learn to sing, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, don't go astray, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, he knows the way. Yet, the principle of obedience is distinct, complementary, and compatible with the principle of divergent thinking. In my experience, the most effective and obedient home and visiting teachers are the ones who break from the standard script. They use creativity to serve the needs of their families. Thinking divergently about your testimony offers the chance to escape the familiar ruts and tired patterns of church membership. If church life is stale, it's time to disrupt your routine. Try home teaching on the first day of the month. Say one prayer without resorting to vain repetition. Sing harmony this Sunday instead of the melody and to do it as loud as you dare. Rather than say you know the church is true when you might not, bear testimony of a single point of doctrine that you do know is true. After hovering in the ideation phase for as long as possible, we eventually converge upon our best ideas in the prototype and testing phase. Learning from mistakes and failures, we apply the knowledge to our next iteration, and consequently, the veil gets thinner. By its very nature, a prototype signifies a work in progress and implies that we will fail. 
To the experienced design thinker, failure is only temporary. It is simply part of the process. Henry Ford said, failure is only the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. In his journal, Joseph Smith described himself as a huge rough stone rolling down a high mountain saying, the only polishing I get is when some corner gets rubbed off by coming in contact with something else. What did Joseph mean? He was undergoing user testing. His ideas were in the rapid prototyping department. He was a work in progress. After the Lord has shown us line upon line, precept upon precept, he promises to try you and prove you herewith. Bill's growth in the church came incrementally. His leadership skills were prototyped and tested as he served as the first presiding elder, branch president, and finally Bishop of Mud Lake, a position he held for 10 years. When the time finally came to build a chapel, the work fell to local ward members. Since they were all farmers, they could only work on the building during the cold winter months. As the building neared completion, a date for its dedication was set. But in the rush to finish, my grandfather realized in horror that they had forgotten to budget for chairs or pews. And the congregation was completely out of money. Faced with the approaching deadline, he remembered a coffee can sitting on the top shelf in his kitchen at home. To earn money for new winter coats, the children had cared for a new crop of bum lambs all summer and had just sold them at market. The tin can contained all their hard-earned money. The Schulberg family quietly took the can down, consecrated their offering to the Lord, and bought chairs for the new chapel. With their prototype and test complete, a promised blessing now awaited them. Alita made over their old winter coats, and they attended the dedication, sitting in new chairs that others barely noticed. And on the day of the dedication, the Apostle Joseph F. Merrill came from Salt Lake City to offer the dedicatory prayer. Unaware that the farmers usually ran out of irrigation water long before the growing season was over, he blessed the stunned members that there would always be sufficient water for their crops. Shortly thereafter, one of the largest underground aquifers in the U.S. was discovered below Mud Lake. In the words of Alma, and because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word, in nourishing it, that it may take root in you. Behold, by and by you shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet, above all that is sweet, and ye shall feast on this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. By applying basic design principles of gospel, uh, basic principles of design and gospel thinking, we can accept Alma's advice to experiment upon the word. Like the braided rug made with Alita's scraps of fabric, a testimony only becomes durable and resilient when the small individual experiences of gospel living are woven together. What was once discarded, worn, and insignificant on its own can offer great strength and comfort in the face of wicked problems. So when the trial of your faith or any other wicked problem comes, remember to do the following. Embrace doubt and uncertainty as essential elements in problem solving. Let them motivate you to seek greater understanding. Remember that a testimony and knowledge is built line upon line. Rather than focusing on what may seem like an unreachable goal, incremental development comes from small, well-placed steps. If chance favors the prepared mind, your preparation will come through immersing yourself in church life rather than dabbling in it. And if gospel living has become routine and uninspiring, or if you feel stuck with a problem, 
Look to change your perspective through divergent thinking. Finally, growth in your testimony only comes through the tests and trials of life. Prototype early and often to succeed sooner. From my own personal experience, if you even have a desire to believe, the seed of testimony can grow and take root within your heart. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today's theme was uncertainty and ambiguity, with thoughts from Dr. Aaron Holmes and Dr. Eric Gillette. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.